0: Before we get started this morning, I just want to warn you, if I say anything that makes completely no sense, I blame it on Reed Hopkins. For those of you that don't know, we had a major youth outreach Friday night that involved staying up all night long and playing tag through a darkened church campus. And so I'm proud to say that I can now make it through our church campus blindfolded, And I have counted how many steps there are in every stairwell, uh, because I'm I'm amazed that I didn't twist an ankle. But we had 63 students here on Friday night. It was a great time. Needless to say, I slept well um, last night. Uh, Got about two hours of sleep uh, early yesterday morning, so I am feeling much better but I still don't promise to be completely clear. So uh, still chasing out the cobwebs here this morning. This morning we're going to have a little bit of a different message. Um, we've been talking about learning how to steward all of our resources from God's perspective. And um, last week we talked about the book of Deuteronomy and how Moses had warned his people that when they got into the promised land and they were satisfied that there would be the temptation for them to forget. And the entire book of Deuteronomy, is essentially a collection of sermons by Moses to remind people of ways that they have seen God at work among them. And so those of you that, uh, that are regular in your attendance here, and those of you that have been visiting for a while, know that my mode of operation is to take a text of Scripture and just kind of walk through that. And this morning, uh, that's, that's not exactly going to be what we do, because I want to recount some of the ways that we have seen God's gracious hand at work uh, in our lives. And so I want to remind us of how God is at work around us. Because just like the children of Israel, we too are tempted to forget. Now some of us forget more than others, but all of us are tempted to forget. And so I ask this question, have you ever stopped to consider how God works? How does God work? Does He work like the government? Let's hope not. How is God working? And the truth is, as we look at the Bible, the Bible is filled with incredible stories of God faithfully leading His people into amazing success. Now, sometimes that success that we see comes through the school of hard knocks. But God is always faithful to keep His promise. And friends, there are some marvelous promises in the Scripture. You probably have a favorite. And even if you are in a situation right now where where the light on the path seems a little dark, you have the promise that God will be faithful to His promise and that He will bring you into an area where there will be blessing, there will be uh, success, there will be advantage, there will be fellowship with God. And oftentimes when God works, sometimes it is accomplished directly and immediately, divine intervention. When I think of the story of Lazarus, that just kind of happened. He walked up and said, Lazarus, come forth. There was no, you know, um, there was no committee meeting you know, to make arrangements, you know, hey, for Lazarus' kind of coming out party, we need to have a big shindig, you know, we need to cook, and we need banners, we probably need to do direct mail pieces. There There was no lead up to it. It was just simple, divine intervention, and immediately it happened. Other times, more times, it seems like God gets things started, Gets the ball moving, gets people motivated, and then leads them slowly and gradually into a whole new way of life. There's a couple examples for you this morning. Remember the story of David. Samuel, the prophet, uh, tells uh, Samuel to get up and to go and anoint a king. Now, the problem is they already have a king named Saul. Samuel, wanting to be a man of God, obeys what God tells him to do. And he goes to uh, Bethlehem, to the house of Jesse, and starts examining all of Jesse's sons. And David is so undervalued that he's not even brought to the meeting with the prophet. He's kind of left out tending the sheep. He's just overlooked as the young one. And what happens is David comes in, and God tells Samuel, indeed, this this is the one. Arise and anoint him. Most Bible scholars think that at this time, David was perhaps 15 years old. He was a nobody. He was a shepherd boy. Nobody knew who he was. He was not a soldier. He was not a hero. He was not a great orator. He was not a great leader. He was overlooked. But yet, he was anointed by God as the king over Israel, and his reign as king did not start for 15 years. How would you handle God saying, congratulations on the new, uh, new appointment. You can move into office in 15 years. I want, a, I want the promotion now. David made good use of the time. When the time came, he was prepared because he did not sit idly by waiting for something to happen in the future. He took God at his word, and he made the most of every opportunity came, as he was a nobody, so that when he was somebody, he did things for the most part, according to God's way. You remember the story of Abram, or Abraham. He was 75 years old when he left Haran. God told him to get up and to go in Genesis 12, promised that he would make him into a great nation by the time he was 86, 11 years into his pilgrimage. He still had no son, and uh, through some chicanery with his wife, had Ishmael by her servant. At 99 years old, God revisits him to tell him, Abraham, Abram, my, my promise is good. I, I, I promise that I will make you into a great and powerful nation. And Abram says, but I have no child. And he says, when I visit you again next year at this time, you'll have your boy. 99 years old, he's told to wait one more year. He started out when he was 75 years old. 25 years, Abram had to wait for the fulfillment of God's promise. Consider the example of Moses. Uh, The book of Exodus is fascinating because it shows just how dramatically Moses was called and God delivered through Moses, freeing the people from, of Israel from slavery in Egypt. And on the surface, the book of Exodus looks like direct intervention. you got bloody rivers and frogs and gnats and firstborn dying. I mean, God is at work. But the truth is, the way the story begins, we kind of halfway expect that this is going to be like a week-long campaign. Bada boom, bada bing, in the promised land, and everything is good. This was going to be an overnight expedition, right? That would have been a powerful testimony to God's might. But it didn't quite happen that way, did it? You see, within days of experiencing God's deliverance, the children of Israel grumbled, and they whined, and they complained. And God had led them to the very edge of the promised land where they can look across the river and see this place that God has given to them, and they send out spies, which, listen, if God has told you, why do you even need to send out spies in the first place? Just go. But they're fearful, and they send out spies, and 10 of the spies bring back a bad report. They get to the edge of the promise, and they turn back. And you know what happens then? God is still faithful to His promise. But they have to wait 40 years to get there. You have to wonder how Moses felt. God had called him dramatically to a mighty task. A burning bush that spoke to him. And everything in this deliverance operation "...went well. God was victorious over the pagan king, but yet his own people rebelled against him in the wilderness." And so this awesome task that Moses was seeing great success in fell apart when the people lost faith in their good God. And the truth is that that's the way things work today. There are times where uh, you wake up thinking the day's going to be one way, and you go to bed going, "...wow!" God was really gracious today. This was a great day. But there are other times that God works through the days and He works through the weeks and the months and the years. Oh, we long for the signs and the wonders, the direct intervention, the immediate action. But the truth is God works in much more mundane material most of the time. The truth is when we stop to consider, we still see God at work, don't we? We see Him at work around us. It just sometimes takes us a little while to see all of the results. God's not got a little chemistry kit that, you know, He's mixing poof, and there it is. He has to work to shape our character, and that doesn't happen overnight. As a church, we talk about following God into His future, and for some of us, uh, that means that all of our eggs are in one basket, and until we see that happen, God's not been faithful to us. Until we see the end result, kind of eggs all in one basket, well, goodness, it's taking too long. But God is at work among His people. He always will be. And the question is whether we see it. And if we just look at the, the big picture, you, uh, you, risk the, um, you, you risk not seeing what God is doing now. And so, just like these Old Testament examples, we, likewise, have seen God steadily at work among us. The question is whether we see it. And so, I want us to take just a moment to look at some of these acts of God, some fast and immediate, some slow and steady, that have begun to bear fruit in our congregation and community. Now, certainly... When we talk about God's faithfulness to Northside Baptist Church, I have a much smaller slice of the pie than many of you. Some of you have the whole pie. You've been here for a long time. You've seen God do great things over the history of this church. I love to hear people tell the story of how the land was paid off and how that whole um, process really just came about. It was very clear and very evident that God's hand was in that. And so it's great to hear the stories of God's faithfulness through the years. And so what I'd like to do for these next brief few minutes is talk about some things that I see. Now, listen, I'm here seven days a week. I might see some things that you have the opportunity to miss out on. So I want to share with you some things that I see that have brought great encouragement to me over this year. I want you to consider these examples. Our Sunday morning services occasionally have been very snug. As a matter of fact, Cecil Staten came up to me here before the service and said, we have 10 parking spots left at 10.30. He said, and there's probably more people on their way right now. Now, I didn't intend to say this, but if you are mobile and able to walk, perhaps you need to make a parking spot available by parking in the grass across the street. What will happen if somebody pulls up and wants to come to our church? Perhaps you've invited them and they circle the parking lot once, twice, three times, and they don't know that that's our property over there to park on. What are they going to do? They're going to find another church to go to. And listen, this is a good problem to have, to have people. We can hold, uh, uh, it's, it's interesting, Reed and I have, have come and we I sat down, and he sat next to me, and then I sat, and we played kind of musical chairs. Um, there's a there's a standardized measure for the American backside that you use as um that you you use as a kind of a church growth indicator, and I, I, I hate I hate to tell you this, but uh, 15 years ago it was not what it is now. Um, we uh, we like our we like our personal space. Now I have heard stories that we had 350, 400 people in here, and someone just clarified for me that we had a lot more pews back then. The pews had been removed. I'm going, how did you fit 400 people in here? Um, given uh, what is a current measure for the average American backside, um, we, can, we can max out with, with a full choir loft with a, a little bit over 300 people in here. 320 maybe? And most people tell you that when you reach about 80% of that, which I did the math and I forgot, um, 250, is that what I said? 260? Once you get to 260, you're snug enough that people are sitting too close to someone and they're not comfortable. They'll go somewhere where there's more space. And listen, we have had a fair number, uh, a fair amount of consistency of being over 260 people. We have to ask ourselves, will people keep coming back if they have to sit shoulder to shoulder with someone that they don't know? So really do a good job during the welcome time. Get to know them um, so they don't mind sitting next to you. Um, but it's good. It's good that our services are snug. God is at work. P- people are showing up that we don't even know who they are. They're not being invited by people. They're driving by. Uh, they're seeing stuff on the website. Uh, and, and people are inviting people to church, but our services are snug. Um, Baptisms, for the last 25 years, we have averaged about six baptisms a year. Now, there have been some years where we've seen 17 or 18 baptisms. But when you look at kind of the consistent trajectory for Northside Baptist Church, about 6.3 baptisms a year is normal for us. Well, one of the things that's great is back in June, we had met our annual baptism rate halfway through the year. We have 11 other candidates for baptism. I mean, we, we may double or triple our baptism rate this year. That's a good thing to see people making testimony that they understand the gospel. And that is, that is kids, that's teenagers, that's adults, that's people who have been a part of church and they just realized, when I was baptized, I didn't know the gospel. So I haven't been baptized, I just had a religious ceremony with water. I need to be baptized because now I believe the gospel. Our youth and children's ministries are busting at the seams. You heard 63 teenagers here on Friday night. On a Wednesday night, I think two weeks ago, two weeks ago, three weeks ago, we had 45 youth in our youth Bible study on Wednesday night. We had 25 kids in our kids' Bible study. That's 70 school-age kids and teenagers, plus 10 to 15 nursery and preschool. On a Wednesday night, we've got over 100 kids On our campus, that's fantastic. That's wonderful. Our small groups on Sunday night. Here, just recently, going into this fall semester, we've got over two hundred people involved in Bible study on Sunday night. Listen, churches all over the country—they don't even have Sunday night or Wednesday night church because people don't come back. And that's my point. If you're visiting with us, our folks like to get together. We don't really need, we, we, we couldn't do, we could, not, we could not do anything tonight and just say we're getting together and people will show up for whatever it is. We're, we're actually going to like do landscaping tonight for the church picnic and people would still show up for that because we like to be together. But to have two-thirds of our church back on Sunday night or Wednesday night is a wonderful thing. <clears throat> we have new efforts that our church is making with um, outreach and follow-up. We, we contact every visitor who visits. They get cards from, from me. They get cards from our follow-up team. Um, when we do things like the um, Easter outreach or the Back to School Bash, those are wonderful things for us to do in our community, but we weren't tying these events that we were doing with the overall outreach strategy of our church. And so now when we have 300 kids show up for the Back to School Bash, We've got their address, we've got their phone number, and we call them and we invite them to church. That wasn't happening before. And we're, we've got people that are stepping up for leadership to help us reach out to people that we should have been reaching out to beyond the event. That's a good thing, to know that we are following up with uh, people and contacting new neighbors. Uh, Miss Winky could tell me how many hundreds and thousands of stamps and letters and postcards they're sending out but anyone that has a new mortgage in Rock Hill gets a postcard from Northside. As a matter of fact, I think it was Keith Patterson. I don't know if Keith is here. Keith has several roommates in his house. He, he and Amanda are renting out some of their extra bedrooms. And uh, he had not invited one of his roommates to church. And I don't know how he got on the list, but he got a postcard from Northside. And he said, isn't this your church? He said, yeah, we'd like to have you come to church. <laughs> That's great. Firsthand accounts of... New ways that we're trying to reach people in our community. I'm sorry, Keith. (laughs) We've got a new energy in our young adult ministry. We're a mile from a major university, and for the most part, they have no idea that we exist. And we've got new leaders and new enthusiasm. We've got a great group of young adults who have the opportunity to learn what it means to be responsible church members, to do new things, and that's a wonderful thing. We've got new missions partnerships. We're helping a church plant in, um, just outside of Indianapolis, Indiana uh, that is just getting started and so excited about moving into a new community and doing outreach. And we have a new missions partnership there where we anticipate doing mission trips on an annual basis to help them as their little bitty baby church kind of learning how to do new things. Again, we've got new leaders emerging. Uh, I'm so impressed with our, our deacons. Our deacons are leading the way for our church. Um, when I when I got here, one of the comments that I I, I heard consistently from our search committee was that uh, we're an old, we're an old church. We, we need to be we need to be younger. What's amazing is we have we have good, veteran, which is the kind word for old, um, mature, wise deacons, who have done such a fabulous job at encouraging young men into leadership. Listen, if our deacons can learn how to do that. Our, they're leading the way for our church for how old people and new people young people can interact and and do what is best for this church for the future last year uh, looking looking at our budget, we were uh, from from the anecdotes that I hear mostly deficit in our our budget, not bad, but we were mostly deficit you know a couple Sundays off we're kind of in the in the, in, the, uh, in the red a little bit. This year, uh, just a general truth, we've been mostly in the surplus. Now, sometimes that's been a big surplus, um, especially if it's after our first Sunday. Sometimes it's been a smaller surplus, and sometimes we've gone into the negative. But generally speaking, our finances as a church are better this year than they were last year. Our finance committee here at the church is doing wise things with the church's money. They're making our money work for us Instead of getting two cents uh, on interest, we're we're finding new ways to make uh, God's money work better for us. And the truth is, God is at work in our church. And if you're here on Sunday morning, you might not have the opportunity to see all that. But isn't that good to know that God is at work? That's a wonderful thing to know. It's a wonderful thing to know when 85% of churches in North America are plateaued or declining. Listen, I, I hate to say it this way, but to stay steady is a victory in this age. To not grow and not go backwards, would be you'd be considered a church growth expert in North America these days. And so to see God adding His blessings to our labors and our efforts is good. So that brings me to this. What can we, what can we begin to look forward to? We have, to, we have to respond to these kinds of things that we see. If our worship services are snug, you guys have done this before, we, we have to actively consider two worship services. Beyond that, we, we have an even more immediate issue. We need to consider additional parking space. You know, if it's going to take us five years, 10 years, 15 years, take your pick, to relocate, what are we going to do for the people that are coming right now? tell them to wait. Wait till we relocate. Well, plenty of parking there. Or let's go build a parking lot at the other end of Dave Lyle and we'll shuttle bus you over. That's not workable. We, we, need to, we need to find some ways to take our worship services that are expanding and have room for people to be here. We have to explore new partnerships, um, both locally and globally. New partnerships. Uh, I've been here for a year, and I'm, you know, I'm trying to figure out what is the word about Northside kind of on the street. And the truth is, um, there's a lot of people who don't know who we are. <clears throat> We're kind of off of Dave Lyle a little bit. If you don't look to the right when you're driving by, you're going to miss it. And so when you start to explain who Northside is, they go, oh, yeah, is that, that's the church over in the Mill Village. Yeah, that's us. That's us. See, you know, there are people who have lived in Rock Hill for a long time that just don't know who we are. Now, if they go to Northside Elementary, they know who we are, because we have a great opportunity to love on the kids there. But there are new ways for us to partner with other churches, to partner with other ministries, to do more things in the community so that people know who we are. They're they're not going to come to church if they don't know who we are, what we do, and where we're located. Globally, when we talk about partnerships globally, I don't mean this to to disparage, I don't say this disparagingly, I'm trying to say this kind of tongue in cheek a little bit. Um, but our overseas, our international missions strategy has been uh, Ken Taylor, Ed LaRock, and Sammy Clowney, and others. God puts on your heart to go on a mission trip, but there has been no strategic plan for being obedient to the Great Commission. So when we talk about missions, where are we commanded as believers? What, what are we commanded to do missions wise? We do do missions here in Rock Hill. This is, yeah, thank you, Ed. We are to do missions right here. Are we to do missions in the broader state of South Carolina? Yes. Um, Are we biblically justified to go to Indianapolis to do missions there? Yes. Are we commanded to go overseas to share the gospel? Absolutely. Listen, guys, when, when we talk about, yes, people in America need the gospel. But you know what? There are half a million churches, there is no one that doesn't drive by a church, at least at some point. Every service we do here, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, is a local missions opportunity. People have the opportunity to buy Bibles, hear it on the radio, listen to a podcast, watch it on the TV, and there are people all around the world that have none of that. They have zero access. If they wanted to be saved, There's no Christian workers. There's no Christian literature. And so, for us to be obedient, we have have two really excellent options that we'll have the opportunity to talk about as a church. Uh, We have a personal connection with a missionary in Africa. You might know his name, David Petro. They're still in the process of learning language and learning customs, but come this coming spring, they're ready to start receiving short term teams. We'd like to go. We'd like to have a, a well-thought-out, intentional strategy for encouraging people to do missions. Because if we don't do that, if we just let popcorn people pop up and say, well, I want to go on a trip, that's great. We need to support that too. But that's not the church being strategic about partnering overseas. So we have an opportunity to partner potentially with a personal connection in David Petrell. We have the opportunity to participate in a place where it is darkest in India. And you'll hear more about that as we uh, deliberate things related to our budget. Are there ways that we can uh, be involved in new partnerships locally and uh, globally? We have to deliberate about new ministry methodologies. I have asked um, probably probably 15 people over the last month, what is Northside Baptist Church's mission statement? Because like in our literature, we've got about a dozen different ones. Bridging the journey and the mission, following God into his future, um, building relationships with God, the world, and his people, sharing the good news about the gospel in Northside Baptist Church. Those are just ones that I can memorize. I said, Kay, help me find the church's mission statement. And she gave me like two sheets of paper. We're We're not clear as a church on what our mission is. Now, we all know what our mission is. We're supposed to share the gospel. We're supposed to fellowship. We're supposed to discipleship. We're supposed to worship. But we don't have a mission statement that says no to some things. That helps us know exactly what it is we're supposed to do. So we need to think through ministry methodologies and be more laser-focused uh, in what we're going. When, when, when I've asked people what our mission statement is, I don't know that I've gotten the same answer twice. Some people have made their own one up. That's not good. You know, if you've got three Baptists in a room, you got four opinions. And so um, we, can't allow, we can't allow that to happen. And last but certainly not least, we must continue to encourage generosity. We are a very generous church, but when we encourage generosity as a church, it leads to a double blessing. You see, as we're generous, we further our mission to reach people, to help, help people, But it also helps us to accomplish our dream of relocation as people are generous. And so in all of these things, when we see God at work and we see ways that we can respond, we want to be a church that is known for good. We want to be a church that is especially known for the gospel. Think about this for a second. You don't have to be a church to do good, right? You know, the Rotary Club can do good. They can go pick up trash alongside the side of the road, you know. Um, uh, the Kiwanis Club, um, whatever, whatever social organization you're a part of, everyone can do good. Only churches have the opportunity to do the gospel. So the, the, the standard is set up here for us, and I think sometimes we're just content to do good, not to do gospel. And so we want to to do good, but we especially want to do the gospel. And we can do that through these things that we're talking about. And so as we look forward to opportunities that we have in front of us, the truth is that some, perhaps most of these, require some kind of financial faithfulness on the part of God's people. And I ask the question, and, and, and Dave Ramsey does this constantly. He asks the question... What could the people of God do for the kingdom of God if they were debt-free? Isn't that a fantastic question? What could the people of God do for the kingdom of God if they were debt-free? In 2008, when our economy kind of tanked out, 22% of all church-going Christians stopped giving to the church and were waiting To see. Once you get out of habit, guess what? It's kind of like jogging. Once you stop, oh boy, it's hard to get started again. When you're dieting and you stop, oh boy, that chocolate cake looks extra sweet. It's hard to get going again. And so when we have talked about personal financial responsibility, what's been wonderful is uh, it's, it's not uncommon for people to say, you know what? 36 months and I'm debt free. Gonna have those school loans paid off. Gonna have the car paid off. Woohoo! Oh, I can't wait to be debt free. We'll, we'll be able to save for retirement. We'll be able to do that vacation we've always wanted to. And people have started kind of salivating, kind of going, "You know, I'm learning how to be responsible with my money. It's going to be wonderful what we can do. We'll have five thousand dollars a month extra every year that right now is just going to interest payments." I ask the question. As you think about your own personal family and finances, have you started to dream a little bit about what will happen one day? Is that bad? No, it motivates you. But in the same way, is it wrong for us, corporately, to dream about what God could do in our church if we were corporately all responsible with our finances? The chief reason people don't give to the church isn't because they're angry. Every Christian feels guilty to some degree, wishing that they could do more. And you know why they can't do more? Because they're in debt. They, they can't do more. And you sit down, and I've, I've heard this story time and again. You know, I pay my bills, and I pay my bills, and I pay my bills, and I pay my bills. And then I look to see what I've got left over, and it's $2. So that's what we give to the church. We've got to attack this debt issue to be able to dream. And so it's not wrong for us to have dreams for our faith family. What could we do for people who are far away from God if we could fund the craziest vision for reaching people? What would you do? You'd be able to say, let's do this. And we go, you know what? We can do that. What would we do for people who are hurting? The reason 22% of Christians stopped giving to their church in 2008 is they were hurting. Did the church do anything to help them? What could we do to reach the next generation? Families are falling apart and kids are bearing the brunt of it. What can we do to put our thumb in the dam to encourage children to reach the next generation? What could we do to encourage healthy families? Marriage is stressful. We have resources that will help. And the point in all of this is that our job as Christians is to encourage one another on to even greater deeds, but ultimately to trust God for enough. To trust God for enough. Just like in the feeding of the 5,000. He had a little kid that brought his his little happy meal. And you remember how the story ended up? Jesus took it. And you remember how much was left over? How much was left over? Twelve baskets. Why do you think that happened? Because he wanted his doubting disciples to have a living illustration of God's provision. God always gives enough. It's just a matter of how you manage it. If, if God's not giving you enough, that's not really the case. You're not managing it well. God gives enough. But there's a wonderful, wonderful story of what happens when God really gets a hold of our hearts and we manage His money His way. It's that we will always have enough. And we find it, and of all places, Exodus 36. This is the story of the people wandering in the wilderness. And there's a wonderful story told in uh, chapter 35 where God has given Moses directions, explicit directions, about building the tabernacle. The tabernacle was a God made building plan. That would be wonderful if he would do that for us today. You know, the blueprints come down out of heaven on a stone tablet, and we know this is what he wants us to do. It's what he did for the tabernacle. And so as uh, Moses had gotten these instructions, <coughs> He explained to the people, and they began collecting. They began collecting to uh, put everything together. And it really is, when you stop to think about it, one of the most amazing stories of the Bible tucked into chapter uh, 36. We'll begin in verse 2. So Moses called uh, Bezalel into Holiob. Uh, If you're uh, expecting a child, uh, two great names from the Bible for you to consider. Moses called Bezalel and Aholiab, and every skillful person in whom the Lord had put skill, everyone whose heart stirred him to come to the work to perform it. So he he put out a wanted ad. Build the tabernacle, wanted tabernacle builders. So if you work with wood, if you work with cloth, if you do this, we want you. Verse 3, they received from Moses all the contributions which which the sons of Israel had brought to perform the work in the construction of the sanctuary. And they still continued bringing to him free will offerings every morning. And all the skillful men who were performing all the work of the sanctuary came, each from the work which he was performing. And they said to Moses, The people are bringing much more than enough for the construction work which the Lord commanded us to perform. So listen to this Moses issued a command. And a proclamation was circulated throughout the camp, saying, Let no man or woman any longer perform work for the contributions of the sanctuary. Thus the people were restrained from bringing any more, for the material they had was sufficient and more than enough for all the work to perform it. Friends, have you ever heard a minister say, apply these words of the Scripture explicitly to his congregation. Stop giving! We've got too much stuff! I have never served in a church where at the end of the year, the last finance committee meeting of the year, we go, what are we going to do with all this money? Wouldn't it be wonderful at that time of the year to say, well, who's hurting the most? What ministries do we need to support within our own church? What can we do for our youth ministry? What can we do for our music ministry that's not in their budget? We just bless them. What can we do with hunger ministries in the area? What can we do with community ministries? And you know what? We've got the chance, this is terrible, to be Santa Claus at Christmas time, because God's people have been so generous that we have the opportunity to be a blessing to the nation's. Here they're building the tabernacle, and everyone worked to give, and the people of God brought too much, and Moses had to command them to stop. Could you imagine if that happened in a church nowadays? How amazing would that be to see? And you see, the point here is not to wring another dollar out of you for the offering. That's not it. That is not it at all. The the wallet is not the target, it's the heart. Because when people have their heart changed by God, it is not a sacrifice to give. Do you know that? It is not a sacrifice to give when you are giving to someone or something that you love. We've had some um, neat neat illustrations of this uh, here recently. Uh, Because of the teaching campaign we are in, we're hearing stories of people... Uh, getting debt free, hard conversations that husbands and wives are having for the first time about finances. Um, Somebody told me, hey, pray for us, we're having our first family budget committee meeting tomorrow night. We've been married 12 years and we've never done this before. Um, You know, important conversation for a husband and wife to have. And what's awesome is Scott and Reed are both um, doing this with their young people. So adults or grandparents, if you're not asking your kids what they're learning, you need to. And so we have, um, we have been delinquent. about. We always ask, you know, on the drive home, oh, yeah, that's good. I'm glad you're, glad you're learning that, yada, yada, yada. <clears throat> but then we have seen um, things that have been learned being put to work. It's one thing to learn it and walk out of the church and forget it. It's something entirely different to do something with what you've learned. So um, I don't have permission to share this picture, but I, I thought I would do it anyways. And this will, this will remain safely anonymous. I cannot tell you um, whose picture this is besides the fact that their initials start with Chloe Davis. <laughs> <clears throat> I don't know when it was. When did, we, when did we discover this? Was it Monday, last week? Um, Chloe is in the youth group, and she's going through all of this stuff about learning what to do with your money. And grandma and grandpa were just here, and they looked at her report card. And, um, you know, they want to encourage good grades, and so uh, she got a little bit of cash. It's kind of a rare thing for a kid. And so what did she do with the cash that she received? She went, you know what? We're talking about learning three categories for your money. Spend, can you see it up there? Spend, save, and give or for her tithe. Now, I'm not going to tell you how much money is in the envelopes because we don't need any visitors to our house. Um, it's, a, it's a modest sum for a little kid. And you know what she has done? She's taken a third of her money for spending. She's taken a third of her money for um, saving. She's taken a third of her money for giving. And I know this will happen so raise your hand now and tell me you're going to do this so I can wring your neck now. Some well-intentioned church person is going to come up and go, little sweetie, it's only 10%. (laughs) When God gets a hold of your heart, how much can I give? Is there any amount that's off limits? Or are we trying to do, do lowest common denominator giving? keep God off her back. And I sit there and I go, if we have a generation of young people that learn how to live on what they have so that they can plan on being generous with what God has entrusted to them. The story is no different for us. The challenge is that we have learned too late in life and now we have encumbrances that we have to take care of. Friends, don't you want to be the kind of church That can be radically generous, not for our glory, but for the good of humanity and for the glory of God. So as we conclude this morning, I just want to say thank you. We have have a number of families that give sacrificially, regularly, and generously. Guys, everything we do here at the church uh, is touched by your generosity. We would not be able to do what we do except for your faithfulness. And so thank you very much for letting us do something crazy on Friday night with 63 kids and only charge them five bucks. That's affordable. That's the most fun you're going to have for five bucks running around blacked out church. There are a number of people here who are doing the hard work of getting out of debt. They've realized what the Bible has said about um, the the debtor is slave to the lender. And, And they want to get to a point where they can be generous because right now there's not a lot of margin in their finances. And so for those of you that are working hard to get out of your debt, we're proud of you. That's not an easy thing to do. It's easier to keep going, same old, same old, and and never see the light of day. And we know how hard it is to do that, but you're doing a great job, and we want to do whatever we can to help you. For those of you who, for whatever reason, financial reversals, bad decisions, are not supporting your faith family financially, I ask you this question. Don't you want to be a part of something that does good and that tries to make the gospel explicit? You have that opportunity. I ask the question again. What could the people of God do for the kingdom of God if they were debt-free? And I'm encouraged that we might just find out Place. Lord, we thank you. This morning we know that we need to count our many blessings. And Lord, for those of us that have by our lifestyle said that you have not provided all our needs, Lord, may we repent. You, you always give enough. And so Lord, it's important for us to be good stewards, good managers of the resources that you have given to us. I thank you for the... Um, really the numerous stories of people that are working hard to honor you with their money by getting out of debt, by doing the things that they need to be doing. So Lord, we pray that you uh, increase their spirit, that you encourage them, that you help our, our church to come alongside them and help that, help them out with that. Lord, we, we pray that this morning as we have this opportunity to talk about the ways that you're at work, that we don't, don't just think about how you have provided for us as individual families. Lord, you have generously provided for this church and you are entrusting us with even greater responsibilities as new people come lord find us faithful not just in doing what we've always done but in exploring new territories for our obedience our faithfulness and our work lord please do your work in our hearts in jesus name we pray